And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producer, talented musician and recording engineer, Adam Kamara, and me, the knocker-off of tall hats, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. All right. Uh, today's manifesto is Alastair McIntyre's 1984 speech, Is Patriotism a Virtue? And for the work of art, we're doing a public occasion, a public ceremony, the burial of the unknown soldier after World War I on November 11th, 1921. Uh and we're going to be using the details taken from G.I. Messiahs by Jonathan Ebel. Uh, if anybody knows why we have a sudden surge of listeners from Ohio, uh, we're grateful for the surge. We're just curious as to why. Um, no, Any ideas, Jake? I have no ideas, but I'd also like to know if anyone does know where all these Ohio listeners came from, um, where in Ohio is it? I got family in Ohio. Yeah, maybe it's your family, man. I'd, I'd rather, if you know that it's Phil's family, don't tell us. <laughs> that I'd rather stay in the dark about, but if it's non-familial relations, <laughs> please let us know who and why. <laughs> All right. Um, Alistair McIntyre. So McIntyre uh, a philosopher mainly famous for his work After Virtue, um, 1981. Uh, is a virtue ethicist. Uh, basically, he gives this kind of history of different attempts starting uh, in, in the Enlightenment to kind of slough off tradition and ground um, ethics um, and you know values in some kind of rational system. And you know, every philosopher tears up everything that everybody did before and comes up with a new system uh, until you sort of. You know, eventually end up with Nietzsche repudiating everything, uh, and he uh, and he comes to the conclusion that there's this kind of just huge moral. Um, there's 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 no ability for us to talk um, about morality and ethics using these systems in any kind of coherent way. And in fact, usually what we we tend to do in modern discourse is we'll kind of grab from different philosophical theories and systems as, as they're useful to us. Uh, and instead, he wants to look to pre-modern conceptions of rationality that are grounded in the life of a community, Aristotle and, and Thomas Aquinas he ends up looking, looking to, um, and the kind of aims and purposes of life within a community and a set of communal practices. Um, and he gave this lecture uh, considering patriotism uh, and I think it, it, it fits in really well with his project because in terms of the sort of disembodied view of, of ethics, um, patriotism is a strange kind of, of um, 
sentiment, right, or difficult to ground rationally because yeah. it, it involves particular local attachments that are not, you know, not universal. Not so, so it's patriotism is a this very modern formulation, right? right. National patriotism, patriotism distinct from communal loyalty or even a sense of national belonging. Patriotism is this modern thing that inspires in the way that it inspires this um, strong for and against reaction seems to surface something essential in the modern Ethos in the in the modern liberal ethos. He, he distinguishes different types of patriotism, right? And so he wants to clarify that he's not talking about people um, who sort of, as you sometimes see with, uh, you, you know, you saw it with people championing the, the French Revolution or you know communists talking about how you know the Soviet Union was the exemplar of this cause that would subsume the entire world. He's not talking about people who support their nation because their nation is the champion of some great moral idea that everybody should, should you know, you know uh, jump onto. So if you think that, you know, American values are the best or America is, is the best champion of values that we need in the world uh, and that is why I support America, that's different from a patriotism which is – specifically concerned with, you know, the good of the nation, uh, prioritizing that over the needs of people outside those boundaries. And it is, you know, anybody can have a sort of attachment to an ideal of which a nation could be an exemplar. You could be a communist who supports the Soviet Union who is not um, a Russian, Russian, uh, but as he points out, only Frenchmen can be patriotic about France uh, while anyone can make, you know, the cause their own. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. But conversely, so mm-hmm. on the one hand, you have uh, – he's saying that patriotism is not yeah. an incidental attachment to right. a country that is the champion of a particular value. Yeah. It's, it's one of a class of loyalty exhibiting virtues, uh, other members of which are marital fidelity, the love of one's family and kin, friendship and loyalty to such institutions as schools and cricket or baseball clubs. But that loyalty, he's saying, conversely – it's, it's not just that it can't be for a, a universal uh, kind of universalism. It also can't be a totally blind loyalty. Uh, it's not jingoism either. He's right. saying that neither can it be, neither is the patriotism uh, that he's talking about a blind loyalty in spite of a you know conscious belief in the tyranny or the immorality of the nation. Um, it's a belief that moral qualities are embodied in one's own nation, that there is a, a moral – that moral values emerge from the community of one's own nation. And, and it's not about sort of 
reciprocity, right? And he says, you know, so although one may love as a patriot one's country or as a husband or wife exhibit marital fidelity and cite as partially supporting reasons one's country or one's spouse's merits and one's own gratitude to them for benefits received, these can be no more than partially supporting reasons. Just because what is valued is valued precisely as the merits of my country or spouse or as the benefits received by me from my country or spouse, right? So it's a very particular thing. And then he contrasts patriotism and that attachment to a country with um, an account of morality which has enjoyed high prestige in our culture, he says. According to that account, to judge from a moral standpoint is to judge impersonally. It is to judge as any rational person would judge independently of his or her interests, affections, and social positions, right? So you abstract yourself from all kind of social particularity and, um, you know, make moral determinations after you have done that. This is a kind of high abstract liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the 20th century, a Rawlsian view of, of morality as being a objectively determined, universally accessible position that every individual enters into as an individual. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, he points out that, uh, if you know you're thinking of from an impersonal moral standpoint, right? Um, you need to have neutrality when judging kind of rival and competing interests, and also rivaling rival and competing sets of beliefs about the best way for human beings to live. Each individual is to be left free to pursue in his or her own way that way of life which he or she judges to be best. While morality, by contrast, consists of rules which, just because they are such that any rational person, independently of his or her interest or points of view on the best way for human beings to live, would assent to them, are equally binding on all persons. So there's a kind of flattening uniform effect to this. And, you know, there's, there's – uh, I think, you know, we can often see you know, people are – sometimes I get, get quoted at me, um, patriotism is the last, last refuge of the scoundrel uh, or – there's a um, uh, philosopher, um, maybe political scientist, who said that patriotism is no more than the the love of an a- of a uh, an ass for its stall, hmm. um, and that there's you know, uh, it's a basic kind of um, uh, an immoral proposition because because it it, it specifically does not treat everyone as equal, right? Doesn't it treat everybody as an equal, uh, equally deserving of moral consideration. Not even all strangers is equally deserving of moral consideration. Right, and, and McIntyre's example to show um, why these two things are incompatible, why patriotism is incompatible with a perfectly universalist egalitarian liberalism is a fairly obvious example, which is that there's a scarcity of resources right. in the world and that when two countries run into uh, a problem over who's going to control a particular resource, the patriotic liberal who claims that they can be both patriotic and liberal may be overlooking the fact mm-hmm. that their patriotism would require that they not view the competitor nation as equally deserving of the resources as their own nation. Right. And, you know, th- there's um, – t- take an extreme can- case of the kind of impersonal view. Uh, Peter Singer has this kind of famous sort of thought experience of like if you're walking by a pond and you see that there's a boy in the pond who is drowning, right? Um, 
most of us would hold that person morally responsible if they didn't jump in and save that kid, right? Even if they would then ruin their, you know, $500 suit or what have you, right? Um, and he argues that in the modern world, we are functionally continually passing by boys drowning in ponds, right? You know, every time that we make a sort of purchase for ourselves or um, uh, <laughs> we are diverting resources that could be used to, you know, huge benefit for, you know, the most desperate, the most impoverished pe people of the world. Um, and so that if we take it, take the idea seriously that we have a more moral responsibility to act um, and that, uh, you know, each life is equally valuable, then we're... You'd be compelled to... to at every moment and in every decision about what kind of gum you buy and everything else to consider a zero-sum cost-benefit. That's actually a perfect illustration of why I don't take Singer seriously. I find that silly um, well, and not very instructive. I, th I, I think that the and, – and you get this from McCaskill, I think it's the effective altruism guy, hmm. where he's like there's a certain degree of like psychological needs that people have to have met. Um, and he's like if you can meet that level of needs – uh, which means you do sometimes, you know, treat yourself so you don't burn out, right? Um, because, you know, humans are imperfect machines who can't maximize utility um, but, you know, need to, to satisfy themselves. Then, you know, you, you know, what is above, you know, that kind of threshold of what, what you would need to keep yourself going and satisfied and living a relatively kind of meaningful life, that you should be donating. Hmm. And, you know... You can argue against that position, but like, yeah, I think people like him have done a tremendous amount of good, and yeah. there's a lot to be said for somebody who lives their life that way. And certainly, you know, you, we can disagree with with Singer, but he donates a ton of money to charity and has done a lot of good in his life. So I think that there's well, I, yeah, okay, I can't disagree <laughs> with Singer despite him donating to yeah. charity. That's no endorsement of his philosophical right, position, right, right, right. but that is supposed to illustrate the way in which um, even people who may subscribe in the abstract to a kind of perfect yeah. egalitarianism can't actually or don't actually live that way. Well, it's, it's a kind of impossible way of, of yeah. existing. Uh, it would kind of – it would mean that – and this is you know uh, kind of classic critique of utilitarianism from Bernard Williams is basically like it would, it would tear you apart as, an, as like the integrity of you as a moral agent to – perpetually right. subsume, you know, your own projects and attitudes and goals into this kind of utility calculus that, that it right. demands. So speaking of you as a moral agent, though, this brings us back to McIntyre's point. Once he set up this conflict between uh, universalist liberalism and patriotism, the next move he takes is to say – um, what is the foundation of morality? Right. If there is a conflict between liberal morality and patriotism, yeah. where, what about morality? Where is this? Well, he says, from? is this the only possible way to understand morality, meaning the impartial, universal way? And he says, as a matter of history, the answer is clearly no, right? Like this, that impersonal, impersonal ideal is, is actually a relatively recent phenomena. Um, and he says, and, you know, he's got this, you know, kind of communitarian ethos where he says, look, um, 
the questions of where and from whom my morality, I learned my morality, turn out to be crucial, right, for both the content and the nature of the moral com commitment. It is an essential characteristic of the morality which each of us acquires that is, it is learned from in and through the way of life of some particular community. The moralities of different societies may agree in having a precept, you know, saying that a child should honor his or her parents, but what is what it is to so honor and indeed what a father is and what a mother is will vary greatly between different social orders. And so even when you have similar concepts of goods, what those goods are, how you go about achieving them, what it means to be good is going to be highly depend upon the nature of the community, the virtues that it believes in and the ways in which it sees people living those virtues out. And it is that um, uh, the goods by reference to which and for the sake of which any set of rules must be justified are also going to be goods that are socially specific and particular. For central to those goods is the enjoyment of one particular kind of social life lived out through a particular set of social relationships. And thus what I enjoy is the good of this particular so social life inhabited by me and I enjoy it as what it is. Um, and so you can't abstract out um, – in this view of morality, you can't abstract out a kind of universal conception. It needs to be grounded within a particular community. Yeah, and different communities uh, not only can have different ideas of what the good is that are incompatible, they can also have the same ideas of the range of what constitutes uh, good but place emphasis in different places. Mm -hmm. But the the – the point is that there is a uh, contextual grounding out of which the morality necessarily emerges. You know, there's there's a um, there's a work of of like Islamic scholastic philosophy that tells the story of this like guy born in desert island who, through reason, kind of works out. You know, ultimately, like works out a proof of God and this kind of whole system. And the you know, it's this kind of idea. Um, that through reason you could come to understand everything that is necessary. And um, McIntyre, for McIntyre, this is a nonsensical idea, right? He says, you know, I find my justification for allegiance to rules of morality in my particular community. Deprived of the life of that community, I would have no reason to be moral. And indeed, he says, you know, obeying the rules of morality, which is typically hard, um, you know, you rely upon the community around you. Um, uh, and it is only within a community that individuals become capable of morality, are sustained in their morality, and are constituted as moral agents by the way in which other people regard them uh, and what is owed to them uh, and as well as the way that they regard themselves. So in that conception, loyalty to a particular community, to kinship, um, is a prerequisite for morality. So if you take that view, patriotism is not just a virtue but then a central virtue, right? You need to have that kind of grounding and understanding of yourself within a set of social relationships and networks that have moral virtues attached to them to be a moral agent at all. Okay, so then McIntyre rehearses that point basically, right? And then he suggests what a, a counterargument would be, which is that that notion of the uh, communally based moral system of the morality that is not purely an individual uh, matter but that has to be uh, established within a community could 
blind one to the immoral acts of their own community or compel them to go along with those with the immorality of their community. And he has basically two answers to this. And the first answer is um, that as relates to patriotism, that a patriot, because they are attached not to um, the specific manifestation of a polity at a specific time, but to the idea of the nation can view uh, can view uh, uh, the the politics of the nation at any given time, the politics of the state at any given time of being as being a betrayal of its true moral commitments. You're interested in the nation as a project moving forward, right? Which which means, and he says, the patriot is committed is a particular way of linking a past which has conferred a distinctive moral and political identity upon him or her with a future for the project which is his or her nation which it is his or her responsibility to bring into being. Only this allegiance is unconditional. An allegiance to particular governments or forms of government or particular leaders will be entirely conditional upon their being devoted to furthering that project rather than frustrating or destroying it. And I think here of Ralph Ellison in The Little Man at Chihaw Station talking about America as an abstract futuristic nation, right? Where we're, hmm. we're guided by this set of um, sacred words, words like freedom, equality, democracy, that we're forever eating and regurgitating, right? But that, um, you know, to be an American, to be a patriotic American in that sense is to be committed to the project of pushing the country further into the future ideal of the country. Yeah. Yeah, no, I continue to think, uh, despite all the upheavals, uh, of the last few years that the answer is to become more American, not less, yeah. um, as a personal matter. But McIntyre has a second answer here. Mm-hmm. And the second answer, uh, you know, that is... Th- though he also admits, by the way, that patriotism is also a moral danger. Well, this is the second yeah. answer. Yeah. So the first answer is that patriotism can maintain its moral quality even in the face of a immoral... Uh, government. Government. Um, because it's attached to an abstraction. But then he concludes this section by saying, patriotism turns out to be a permanent source of moral danger, and this claim, I take it, cannot in fact be successfully rebutted. And that is because this loyalty will always be in tension with the moral uh, with the moral component. So the, the loyalty is both to a set of commitments and to an actual, uh, you know, social arrangement, social political arrangement. And when one overpowers the other, um, it can lead to immorality and it's a danger and he admits as much. I want to read something. I've read from Vasily Grossman before. I'm a big fan of his. And I want to read something that gets at this kind of social communal aspect of, of... uh, one's life. So he was with the Red Army um, in during World War II, and there's a in his journals, uh, which were published in the book A Writer at War, which are really worth checking out. He goes into this town, um, Kazari, where everyone has been killed, all the the, the uh, uh, Jews. Um, 
and he he's writing about it and trying to explain you know what it is that has happened here. Uh, he writes, there's no one left in Kasri to complain, no one to tell, no one to cry. Silence and calm hover over the dead bodies buried under the collapsed fireplaces now overgrown by weeds. This quiet is much more frightening than tears and curses. Old men and women are dead, as well as craftsmen and professional people. Tailors, shoemakers, tinsmiths, jewelers, house painters, ironmongers, bookbinders, workers, freight handlers, carpenters, stove makers. And he goes on and on, sort of listing the dead and listing the dead. Um, and then he writes, This was different from the death of people in war, with weapons in their hands. The deaths of people who had left behind their houses, families, fields, songs, traditions, and stories. This was the murder of a great and ancient professional experience, passed from one generation to another in thousands of families of craftsmen and members of the intelligentsia. This was the murder of everyday traditions that grandfathers had passed down to their grandchildren. This was the murder of memories, of a mournful song, folk poetry, of life happy and bitter. This was the destruction of hearths and cemeteries. This was the death of the nation which had been living side by side with Ukrainians over hundreds of years. And... In that conception, there's the individual dead and the weight of the individual dead, right? But there's something else, right, that um, is reflected in that last bit, right? Mm -hmm. the, the kind of complex cultural life of the community, which was bound up in all those individual actors, was not kind of contained in any one of them and yet um, – somehow makes this loss worse, right? More, uh, more of an atrocity than can be measured in the simple number of the dead, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, for McIntyre, I think the question would be that thing, that thing that is not simply the accumulation of individual lives with the weight of an individual life, but uh, the social life of a community that exists when people are living together with a set of traditions um, and cultural practices, <laughs> is that a thing that you have a moral relationship to? And the answer seems to him is clearly yes. Not only do you have a moral relationship to it, but it is you know one of the only ways in which you can come to be an acting moral agent at all. Right. I, I think that he um, he arrives. Ultimately and, and continually at the yeah. latter, that this right. is the basis of morality. It's Each one of us to some degree, he writes, understands his or her life as an enacted narrative. And because of our relationships with others, we have to understand ourselves as characters in the enacted narratives of other people's lives. Moreover, the story of each of our lives is characteristically embedded in the story of one or more larger units. I understand the story of my life in such a way that it is part of the history of my family or of this farm or of this university or of this countryside and I understand the story of the lives of other individuals around me as embedded in the same larger stories so that I and they share a common stake in the outcome of that story and in what sort of story it both is and is to be, tragic, heroic, comic. A central contention of the morality of patriotism is that I will obliterate and lose a central dimension of the moral life if I do not understand the enacted narrative of my own individual life as embedded in the history of my country. For if I do not so understand it, I will not understand what I owe to others and what others owe to me. For what crimes of my nation I am bound to make reparation, for what benefits to my nation I am bound to feel gratitude. Understanding what is owed to and by me and understanding the history of the communities of which I am a part is on this view one and the same thing. 
So a, a couple of things come to mind here, and uh, I think it would be easy for us to, you know, continually uh, point out what we find to be virtuous and true about this, mm-hmm. given that both of us are generally um, sympathetic to McIntyre's thought and also generally sympathetic to this view of a communally grounded morality. Partially, in my case, I would say sympathetic to this view of morality that needs to be grounded in community based on a sense that came to me later in life um, in a, in a, a concretized way of the the limitations of individualist morality that um, I, you know, grappled with for many years before uh, really sort of articulating some of these ideas. But much rests here to criticize now on the idea of the nation. So McIntyre's point about morality grounded in community, um, you know, has a few... There, there are a few uh, problems that I can see that I'm not sure he addresses in the piece. One of them is that the modern nation state doesn't necessarily instantiate or reflect a long communal tradition. Uh, and in fact, there are cases we can think of with modern states that far from representing or institutionalizing in some way communal tradition are breaks with the community of morality, represent the overturning of established forms of social and communal morality. So so the body that you're patriotic to, now you, you could use his earlier uh, logic and say, well, in that case, your patriotic feeling would be to the community that existed uh, before the state. But, but what body that you know the 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 body that that uh that you owe that loyalty to in the context let's say of a post westphalian nation state system it becomes unclear if you're saying that the state is not the legitimate embodiment of that patriotic feeling then what is mm-hmm. uh you know and if it's the nation what na- you know the and nation also does, is does a, the nation itself um you know the nation, as you know, as an entity, is a relatively modern phenomenon, and is that is there enough of a cohesion in some nations, you know, nations to actually function effectively in the way that he's talking about, right? I mean, the, exactly, yeah. The degree, you know, the degree of divisions about what America is or what it means um, right now, and you know, kind of. <laughs> you know, are so fractured, right? Um, and so, you know, my, my my tendency is to lean into a kind of patriotic commitment to America as a project, as a way of trying to deal with those fractures, right? But is, is the sense of what America is a coherent enough concept or at least one that the different strands of like different major strands of, of American kind of political and social life understand, is it coherent enough to, to fulfill that role? There is no strict personal order for my inheritance. No Greek will be able to discriminate my body. 
an American is a complex of occasions, themselves a geometry of spatial nature. I have this sense that I am one with my skin. America is, is an interesting, you know, obvious, um, obvious reasons for us to be discussing America. And, and uh, I understand um, what you're getting at there, and I, I think we'll find out. It's not clear whether it's coherent enough. But in America, the fracturing is largely a, a kind of post-traditional fracturing. So the fracturing has not occurred along the lines of, you know, ancient ethnic enmities. Mm-hmm. Well, yes and no. But uh, uh, the the fracturing in America doesn't have, in the way that it is occurring now, the political fracturing doesn't trace to ancient fault lines, right, in American life. But take India, for example. Right, you know, India is a modern nation state made up of essentially hundreds of uh, many nations within it. Now, there's an older historical uh, India. You know, there there are pre-nation state empires that united these many smaller ethnic, uh, ethno-linguistic communities. But where is loyalty owed in that case? Where is the patriotism owed? Why is the state the ultimate repository of that patriotism? If the point is that morality is grounded in community, why does the state become the supreme community? And so there are practical answers to that, uh, though I'm not sure McIntyre even really gets into the practical answers, but those, those practical answers wouldn't necessarily uh, be sufficient to provide a, a full moral explanation for that. So those are just – that's the, the, the one criticism that occurred to me. But there's maybe another more fundamental point to make which relates to uh, this idea of where morality comes from, and that is that just saying that morality is grounded in community doesn't necessarily establish that it is a acceptable morality or that it is a, let's call it, moral morality, sure. which itself operates on the presumption that there are moral moralities and immoral moralities, which requires that there be some sort of universal perspective by which a morality can be judged. And that I don't think he gets into, but it reminds me there was a book published in 1999 by the British philosopher John Gray Mm -hmm. called The Two Faces of Liberalism that I think was way ahead of its time, uh, a tough read, you know, uh, tougher than Vico, I would say, to <laughs> reference something from last week. But the uh, the material is well worth it. And Gray makes this point. He talks about the two faces of liberalism, and he, he divides it between Lockean liberalism and Hobbesian liberalism. And Lockean liberalism is a liberalism in which Tolerance and pluralism is only a means to reach a convergent, higher moral end. Um, 
and and this is the tradition that J.S. Mills is in, for instance, in which there is a higher uh, universal morality that is accessible. Whereas Hobbesian liberalism, as Gray casts it, insists that there is no final resolution of moral questions. There is no convergence because ultimately moral ends can be incompatible, which is to say that two societies that have, let's call it overlapping ideas of the good, overlapping ideas of morality, both societies value loyalty, for instance. But one society values compassion above loyalty. The other society values loyalty above compassion. This puts them in conflict and it can make them ultimately incompatible. And so what Gray calls for in this book is a a liberalism of modus vivendi, a Hobbesian liberalism that acknowledges that there is never going to be a resolution, a perfect moral resolution, because ends will always be incompatible. And he says uh, in this book... Gray says, a kind of moral scarcity is built into the fabric of human life. It is because human needs are contradictory that no human life can be perfect. That does not mean that human life is imperfect. It means that the idea of perfection has no meaning. And so in that case, if the idea of perfection has no meaning, then you can accept that your own community is imperfectly moral without declaring it invalid based on the appearance of cracks in its moral system. But if you subscribe to the idea that there is a perfect morality accessible here on earth, achievable by human beings, and you find your own community wanting, then maybe that would be grounds to declare it, uh, you know, no longer regnant, no, you know, to say that its authority is undermined by that, that, in failure or insufficiency of its moral character. The, um, yeah. uh, we mentioned that, um, Tanazi Coates article on Kanye West, uh, before, uh, in another podcast. And there's a bit in that where he describes American unity. And this is, this is according to Coates, what American unity consisted of. Um, American unity has always been the unity of conquistadors and colonizers, unity premised on Indian killings, land grabs, noble internments, and the gallant General Lee. Here is a country that specializes in defining its own deviancy down so that the criminal, the immoral, and the absurd become the baseline, so that even now, amidst the long tragedy and this lately disaster, the guardians of truth rally to the liar's flag. Nothing is new here. The tragedy is sold, but even within it, there are actors, some who have chosen resistance and some who, like West, who, however blithely, have chosen collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I, Kanye West, the uh, collaborator with Conquistadors. I, I mean, the point that McIntyre makes here, and I can't find exactly where he says this, is that there's an obligation to propose something else then, to... to um, to suggest what, in place of a um, uh, a failed, what might take the place so of a failed do, community? Do you know Kwame Anthony Appiah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really like him, and he has an essay called Cosmopolitan Patriotism. Yeah, yeah, which read is, that. Yeah, you sent me that actually. Um, and he talks about his, you know, his father, uh, who was a Ghanaian patriot, uh, patriot, you know, who believed that you know Ghana was worth dying for. Um, that Ghana itself is this kind of 
complicated product of, of you know, um, uh, post-imperialism that his father also had a deep attachment to Asante, the region where uh, he grew up, um, that he, you know, had an attachment to Africa, right, which again is a kind of abstract category beyond the nation um, that still meant a lot. And, and uh, and he says, you know, when he died, my sisters and I found a note he had drafted, never quite finished, last words of love and wisdom for his children. After a summary reminder of our double ancestry in Ghana and in England, he wrote, remember that you are citizens of the world. And he went on to tell us that this meant that wherever we choose to live and as citizens of the world, we could surely choose to live anywhere. We should make sure we left that place better than you found it. Deep inside of me, he went on, is a great love for mankind and an abiding desire to see mankind under God fulfill its highest destiny. The favorite slander of the narrow nationalist against us cosmopolitans is that we are rootless. What my father believed in, however, was a rooted cosmopolitan, or if you like, a cosmopolitan patriotism. Like Gertrude Stein, he thought that there was no point in roots if you couldn't take them with you. America is my country and Paris is my hometown, Stein said. My father would have understood her. And, um, and then later in the essay, he makes the point that it is because – we humans – it's because humans live best on a smaller scale that we should defend not just the state but the county, the town, the street, the business, the craft, the profession, the family as communities as circles among the many circles narrower than the human horizon that are appropriate spheres of moral concern. We should in short as cosmopolitans defend the right of others to live in democratic states with rich possibilities of association within and across their borders, states of which they can be patriotic citizens. Um, and so – you know, in that vision, there you know there's an openness to exchange, um, as well as you know, a human being as not the you know um, part of one community, but part of many communities with different conceptions of goods, um, which can also sort of jostle against each other or kind of have you know sort of fruitful interchange. Yeah. Um, which is a, a vision that I like. Yeah, it's a, it's an attractive vision. I think it's a, an imperiled vision. Um, imperiled why? Because we're in a moment of uh, uh, retrenchment towards, on the one hand, uh, reactionary nativism, uh, and on the other hand a self-serving cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism that is contemptuous of patriotism. So, you know, you have on the one hand a uh, false uh, false patriotism of, of uh, you know, blood myth, and on the other hand, a cosmopolitanism that believes itself to be above any solidaristic commitments. Um, look, I think... Um, still thinking to some extent about that Coates passage and I well what's interesting about Coates is that he's very firmly attached to communal bonds right um, and I mean he's kind of uh, and does think that there are you know in, in the McIntyre he talks about you know sort of having one sense of oneself as part of a nation helps determine not just what you receive, but also what you owe reparations for, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Coates would certainly agree with that, right? And that Kanye West piece 
is all about the demands that Kanye as a black – like the demands that the black community and the obligations that Kanye West has to the black community. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then sort of, you know, Coates declaring Kanye like a wannabe white guy. Right. But unless the – unless he – uh, will avow uh, black nationalism that he doesn't and say that the black community that Kanye has those obligations to should also be uh, become a sovereign political entity, which is not what he's saying, to point out the brutality and wickedness in American history, which, you know, I don't want to be... Um, it's not just that I don't want to be glib about it. It would be... Uh, it would be unpatriotic to to, to ignore it, it yeah. um, to be glib about it. Uh, but the question is, if if this country is nothing but its litany of crimes, what what will be the what will be the community that replaces it that uh, is is the political sovereign? Unless we're just getting rid of the political sovereign, you know, it's. If not this, what? And also, well, that's a, that's, if this, no, what no, now? Get, yeah. So we could get more specifically and yeah, probably shouldn't devolve into a discussion of Coates. Coates sort of rejects that question, right? He just sort of has a stance of resistance um, without the possibility – without the expectation of success. Well, he is, he is in favor of reparations for slavery, right? Yes, yes. So that's, that is a – that's a positive thing. I'm not saying that's no, no. necessarily a good thing. It's right. And if, you, and if you take the sort of like patriotic stand of a reckoning with what your country has done as being an important part of sort of being a true patriot so that you're not attached to a false history, then that is like the work that he has done bringing those, you know, crimes of American history and continuing to American consciousness are an important and valuable service, right? And and need to be reckoned with. Well, only if they're... Const- I, I don't know how much I want to sit here and talk about Coates, to be honest with you. But you don't have to adopt sort of like his political endpoint to take value from what he's saying. It depends on whether I think that it's a honest and um, meaningful reckoning with the past. Uh, you know... I, I don't have to agree with the end point, but I think that there is a self-serving quality in this move back and forth between communal obligations and the posture of one as a uh, uh, an outside uh, arbiter of morality. You know, I know um, he's taken the position a number of times that his... His obligation is to truth telling. It's not to. Uh, it's not to reforming America, for instance. Yeah. Um, as Adam points out, though, uh, reparations are uh, a demand for justice. Justice occurs within a certain system, so there is an assent to the system, um, to the mechanisms of the system. Uh, at times and a rejection of an obligation to those mechanisms at other times, which uh, I think probably most people, um, you know, reconcile imperfectly. I don't think he's the only one who sort of moves between individual 
and communal obligations, but I think that the um, the the point about what larger community, yeah, look, I, I mean, even in if uh, he's claimed the role as a American, uh, you know, America's public conscience or public editor, Adams wrote the the call for reparations is an appeal to justice within. Uh, the the mechanisms of the American political institution. You know, it's not a call for a rival state that the American uh, political history is so wicked and irredeemable that uh, we need a, a rival state to uh, weaken or marginalize America. It's not a call for the dissolution of the American political system. There is a call for, uh, you know, appeal within the American political system. Reparations is explicitly about that. It's an appeal for justice within um, the existing mechanism of the American polity. The move then to say that uh, this system is both irredeemable and uh, and ought to pay up on its debts seems to me not only to be somewhat incoherent, but also to dodge this question of Um, where morality ought to be grounded for us in the here and now in America. Ought it be grounded in institutions that are explicitly opposed and communities that are explicitly opposed to the, to the wickedness of the American political system? Uh, Is it purely an individual obligation? I think that the, uh, I think that that's, that's just not dealt with. And the, 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 the appeal to being, you know, the individual well, it, conscience. It, 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 for him, it ends in, in kind of a despair of ever changing anything. And so you sort of adopt a pose of resistance to these corrupt institutions that would make reparations if they were good institutions, but that will never happen. The I think there's a kind of – so to go back to the, the McIntyre, you know, one of the things that he says is a problem for the sort of a, appeal of a – impartial liberal order um, dealing out justice is, is their basic conditions of a state to function that will always depend upon what, according to the impartial view of morality, are these sort of irrational, specific local sentiments. One of them is, you know, he mentions um, every political community except in the most exceptional conditions requires standing armed forces for its minimal security of the members of these armed forces must require both that they be prepared to sacrifice their own lives for the sake of the community's security and that their willingness to do so not be contingent upon their own individual evaluation of the rightness or wrongness of their country's cause on some specific issue measured by some standard that is neutral and impartial relative to the interests of their own community and the interests of other communities. And that is to say good soldiers may not be liberals and must indeed embody in their actions a good deal at least of the morality of patriotism. So the political survival of any polity in which liberal morality secured large-scale allegiance would depend upon there still being enough young men and women who rejected that liberal morality. And in this sense, liberal morality tends towards the dissolution of social bonds. Um, And so he says, you know, while the liberal was able to conclude that patriotism is a permanent source of moral danger because of the way it places our ties to the nation beyond rational criticism, the moralist who defends patriotism is able to conclude that liberal morality is a permanent source of moral danger because of the way it renders our social and moral ties too open to dissolution by rational criticism. And each party is, in fact, in the right against the other. I mean, in some ways, I think what he's saying is that the the critical project is too easy and yet in terms of practical, like – 
sort of the application of sort of living in the world and, and putting your morality in, into practice entails some of those things that you could subject to to this aggressive scrutiny and, 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 and even include sort of some kind of contradictory elements that don't, don't mesh. Yeah, I, yes, yes, it includes some contradictory elements that don't mesh. I mean, look, the Coates position of uh, sort of, you know, uh, I am a conscience outside the system is fundamentally an aesthetic position in some ways, I think. Um, uh, you know, the, the politics of it, I, I don't know. In the way that the politics of it move between concrete claims and moral claims uh, with, you know, leaving a residue of each on the other so it's never entirely clear. Well, what's the moral claim and what's the political claim? You're saying the position is call for reparations, but America will never deliver on it, right? And so therefore it only stands as a... Uh, perpetual repudiation of the injustice of a nation that won't live up to this. So, okay, so is it a moral claim or a political claim or an aesthetic claim? It's not... uh, It it avoids having to fully answer that, I think. I I don't think that that's... uh, These questions of how justice ought to be exacted within this, this community, this nation to which patriotism is owed, I don't think that's a... These are not insignificant questions. And uh, as I, you know, where I was before, I come back to whether or not the state ought be the ultimate repository of the kind of communal, um, communally based morality that we're talking about, I don't think is a settled question. And I think it's an historical fact for the time being and you, if you want to make the case that America is so fatally compromised by its past, it ought to be dissolved. Okay, you can make that case. I think it would therefore probably also apply if the, we're using America as a benchmark. There'd be a number of other states uh, that I could nominate as also being fatally compromised by their past. But but get rid of them, dissolve those states, and what else takes their place? But if you're not suggesting the replacement of the state or the supplanting, you know, supplanting the state with something else. And if you're not suggesting that a, a better state um, overtake a a compromised state, then you're appealing to something within the state itself, within the nation itself. Uh, you know, maybe not the state, maybe not the state as the political body representing the uh, political collective of the nation or the polity but it, it nevertheless recognizes the legitimacy of the political collective to appeal to it and to suggest that that is the best mechanism for the pursuit of justice rather than the overthrow of an illegitimate state. And I think that, uh, I think that people have a hard time dealing with this often uh, because it suggests that there is a responsibility to collective bodies, to histories, to institutions that are morally flawed, to say the least, and that have blood on their hands, and that have crimes in their past. And the fact that all such bodies have blood on their hands, have crimes in their past, doesn't feel... Um, 
you know, may not uh, may not offer a consoling perspective when you're dealing with the, the crimes nearest at hand. Nevertheless, here we are, and we we need to uh, appeal to justice through something. And this is a, a good place to make the distinction between patriotism and nationalism because they're not the same thing. And I don't know that uh, we've clarified that yet. Um, but, you know, nationalism is a uh, something closer to the, the kind of blind, immoral loyalty. Um, or, 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 well, uh, the uh, insects line, mass oh, of insects. Oh, go, go for it. That sounds that's um, what I've got. Orwell, in Notes on Nationalism, Orwell says, By nationalism, I mean, first of all, the habit of assuming that human beings can be classified like insects and that whole blocks of millions or tens of millions of people can be confidently labeled good or bad. But secondly, and this is much more important, I mean, the habit of identifying oneself with a single nation or other unit placing it beyond good and evil, and recognizing no other duty than that of advancing its interests. Nationalism is not to be confused with patriotism. Both words are normally used in so vague a way that any definition is liable to be challenged, but one must draw a distinction between them, since two different and even opposing ideas ideas are involved. By patriotism, I mean devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life, which one believes to be the best in the world, but has no wish to force on other people. Patriotism. Uh, well, I'll just cut it off there. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I think that that gets very much to, you know, McIntyre's point about, uh, and he you know, brings up examples of patriots working both inside and outside of, of political systems, uh, oftentimes uh, aggressive critics of, of their government, sometimes you know, dying in rebellion against their governments, uh, and yet still uh, operating on the basis of, of patriotic principles. There's a really interesting book by the poet Gregory Pardlow. It's a fantastic memoir called Air Traffic. I don't know if he won the Pulitzer for his book um, Digest, which... Uh, has a lot of actually poems about um, the deal explicitly with patriotism, with uh, black history. Um, and in his memoir, there's a bit where he's, you know, he's talking about the importance of, of, of strong narrative, right? And how we often don't have the fortitude to believe in a narrative that isn't validated, validated by institutions, park statues, or longstanding traditions and rituals. Uh, it's difficult to hold on to a history that provides no immediate material advantage beyond the feel-good embrace of home. We shrug our shoulders and accept what everyone else is accepting. Selling out is a convenient thing to do. And then he writes, If I'd rather not raise my kids on a story, like black history, that has been handed down in a way that foregrounds sadness and frustration, what can I give them in its place? The rabbi told me that the story of the Jews, too, is a story of survival and endurance, but the story of the black American, because it has an identifiable originating event, the Big Bang of the Middle Class Passage, is difficult to spin as inspiring or promising unless we give the story a biblical version of evil. We make black people good and slave owners bad. 
In this reduction, the bad man gets polished to an obdurate, inhuman sheen while the suffering endured by the meek is given a purpose. The meek must nobly endure, anticipating their inheritance, while the bad man stands outside the possibility of redemption. Unlike institutional racism, which is both measurable and real, the bad man is a ghost who answers to no legislation or public policy and obscures the messy truth that America is an ideological collaboration, a work in progress undertaken simultaneously from countless points of view. I want my kids to do more than endure, as difficult as I know it is to do that alone. Who's that? Gregory Pardlow. Check him out. Yeah, um, the whole, that, the, that memoir is amazing. And like, yeah, you know, I th- oh, I read something class about and, that at the and, time. Yeah, and he's a phenomenal poet. I was gonna read like some of his poems, but I actually that that deal with this specifically. But like, I didn't want to slice and dice into his. Yeah, poems, you know? well, look, there's a reason it. why we can't have a conversation about patriotism without talking about slavery and American America's treatment of uh, black people and then black citizens, and other, slaves, and other well, and and peoples, and yeah. the and the the. Uh, American Indians and and it's um, and and Native Americans and uh, you know the reason why is not only because of the measurable crimes involved, but also because when Pardo talks about uh, what does he say, an evil, a ghost? Uh, what the bad he man is a ghost. The bad man is a ghost. No legislation or public policy and obscures the messy truth. Because America. communities are also haunted by spirits and animated by spirits, and these things don't easily go away. And the the you know the struggle for real justice is the struggle against um, these these kind of uh, reductive. Spirits, in a sense, it's a, you know, it's a grappling with uh, with more immediate conditions, but you don't easily just get rid of um, the kind of spirits that that haunt a community. That and the the sense yeah. of justice, the sense of morality that becomes embodied in institutions and practical law, comes from even in McIntyre's formulation comes from. The long, gradual accretion of experience and memory that produces a sense of what morality is. And that, mm-hmm. that long accretion, that, that building of tradition involves, you know, forms of haunting and, and forms of spirits. And I, I also there was, you know... You know, he points out institutions, but also park statues, right, uh, is one of the things Pardlow talks about. I think of, you know, like uh, the Equal Justice Initiative's uh, work to sort of say, okay, like, why why have we not commemorated like American lynchings or, or approached that history in the way that, say, Germany uh, attempts to deal with, um, you know, its past? The point is not, like, you don't can commemorate those things because you want to perpetually live in the wound. It's so that you can actually publicly incorporate that into the understood history of the country so that you can continue forward as, 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 as a nation, right? That you don't just – you don't just pretend that the ghost isn't there, right? Or that the, the conditions that gave rise to the ghost yeah. never existed because that, that ensures that you will be perpetually haunted by it because you will never actually deal with the concrete sort of effects of that. 
history. Yeah, no, I, I understand that, but it legitimates the nation to to if you're asking for a truth and reconciliation commission, which I, I don't think um, is an illegitimate thing to ask for. You know, it, it that is to be coherent um, requires the sense that there is a way forward um, through this body that would enact that that process of reconciliation. And part of the problem I find moving away from uh, just the American scene, for instance, with the, the people who are most dismissive of patriotism, and I think this is what Orwell was getting at and he gets in trouble for it um, with the left for having expressed some of these sentiments. But part of the problem is that you find that sometimes the the people most contemptuous of the notion of patriotism as being a kind of petty chauvinism are liable to blindly fall into forms of kind of proxy nationalism is one way to describe it. There's a guy, a journalist I'm friendly with named Aris Rusinos. He's a really good uh, war reporter for Vice. He just did a video on the total destruction in uh, Raqqa, the, the former yeah. Islamic State capital in Syria and the lack of rebuilding there. And he's made a point in the past that I think is a student. He's talking mostly about the context of the Syrian conflict, which he's followed very closely and done some excellent reporting on. But he talks about the way in which it's become this sort of arena for a kind of uh, proxy nationalism for people, many from the West, but not exclusively from the West, who are alienated from their own societies, who would view a participation in the political life, particularly a uh, engaged, enthusiastic uh, participation in the political life of their own polities as being illegitimate, suspect, whatever, but who throw themselves with blind enthusiasm into the causes of uh, people remote from themselves, you know, where, where they're not taking risk in the same way, where there, there are no stakes for them in the same way. And this leads to this kind of, it can lead to this sort of escalating third-party rhetoric between, you know, some British, uh, you know, some British person on the one hand, you know, a lot of this, you don't want to make too much of the Twitter aspect of this, but people on Twitter taking these hyper-nationalist positions in regard to uh, conflicts they have no direct participation in who would view the equivalent of that sort of thing in their own societies as being fascist. Do you think you're the only one that suffered? We've all been through it in here, but we haven't given up. We're still human beings with dignity. But you, you're out there with the garbage. You're nothing. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting piece by um, Valeria Lucelli about uh, it's like her transcribing or translating an interview that her mother did with like a member of the FARC who was demobilizing in Colombia. But then also, like, including her own commentary, including about, like, the stories her father told her growing up about, like, you know, when he went to Columbia to try and, you know, find the FARC, um, which was a good story 
for you know a, a certain member of you know, basically the Mexican elite of a kind of leftward you know uh, intelligentsia uh, to have until like at a certain point they stop telling that story because you know the news of what the FARC really was and the kidnappings and the human rights abuses and the forced displacements just made it no longer the sort of thing that you could that you know made for pleasant cocktail discussion right and how um, and she kind of deals with the kind of she talks a little bit about the repercussions for sort of her generation of uh, of kids uh, but it's that sort of thin romantic attachment to you know to another another life another conflict Uh-oh. yeah yeah this seems like a good uh, a good place to say what would this look like yeah in practice it's difficult because you know uh, McIntyre doesn't come down. I mean, it, I think it's it's pretty clear that even though he posits these as like, well, they both have claims against the other, he's clearly reviving, uh, trying to revive a serious consideration of patriotism, right? And so I think what it it looks like in practice is, um, what he's leading us towards is respecting patriotism as a serious virtue that nations do have a serious moral claim on us that that claim should be taken seriously but that there is a way in which appeals to an impartial morality um, which can be disastrous if we go 100% that way can offer us ways of stepping of seeing the dangers that the patriotic sensibility can lead us into and so that there needs to be some kind of balance in these things. Um, but I don't think he works out – I mean he explicitly doesn't claim to have worked out a hard and fast rule. No, and, and he's also you – know, balance is not the ultimate objective here, no. right? You're, you're absolutely right that what he's, what he's doing principally is saying that liberal universalism as a – moral principle is incompatible with and inferior to uh, patriotism, that a uh, a universalist liberal morality um, is both inconsistent um, and ungrounded, unattached to the actual foundations of a, a real morality. That he's saying that one can go too far in that direction, and so there's a a place for the the view of uh, patriotism as dangerous, and also for uh, liberal universalism. But the greater danger is that we've we've gone too far towards liberal universalism, which is not to say that this is an attack on the principles all principles associated with liberalism because it's not you know this is where the gray text about the two faces of liberalism becomes useful because it's a question of what liberal tradition um what liberal tradition you're attached to but you know gray's a kind of or excuse me uh mcintyre's a kind of aristotelian um becomes an aristotelian he's a, a marxist early in his life um but the way he ends the piece is uh worth quoting here a short bit from it and he says um, this is after he's uh, he's talked about um, 
for a morality of particularist ties and solidarities has been conflated with a morality of universal, impersonal, and impartial principles in a way that can never be carried through without incoherence. And he goes on to say, in the concluding paragraph, One test, therefore, of whether the argument that I have constructed has or has not empirical application and practical significance would be to discover whether it is or is not genuinely illuminating to write the political and social history of modern America as in key part the living out of a central conceptual confusion, a confusion perhaps required for the survival of a large-scale modern polity, which has to exhibit itself as liberal in many institutional settings but which also has to be able to engage the patriotic regard of enough of its citizens if it is to continue functioning effectively. That is to say, is America as emblematic of the modern, post-Enlightenment, post-19th century positivist, liberal universalism, is America, 20th century, 21st century America, as the exemplar, of that kind of liberal morality, living within delusion and, to some extent... In useful delusion. In necessary delusion. But the, the delusion is necessary because it can't admit the ways in which its liberalism is unpracticable, uh in which the universalist tendencies of its liberalism is unpracticable. Now, I just, uh, I wrote an essay for Tablet recently where I talked about liberalism being unable to escape uh, an irony that it's caught inside. And that... That's an excellent piece. Thank you. That piece was, uh, you know, I spit out. Uh, did a lot of... What's the title for uh, The title is, I think, The Dirtbag Convergence, but it might also be under the new American anti-humanism. Listen, I threw out a lot of ideas in that piece. It was sort of like a, a placeholder, and I think uh, some of them were strewn atop one another. And so I'll go back and I'll, I'll neaten up the mess that I made there, but... Um, that was part of what I was talking about. You know, this is part of, of what I was getting at. The, the way that this works in practice, in part, right, is that you wind up with, um, and this goes back to the, the um, Apaya essay that you were talking about before, you wind up, in part, in the present political and social scene with a class of universalists who are... Um, using the pretense of their universalism to conceal the very particular loyalties of their power, some of which are class loyalties. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, you have a upper-middle class, large upper-middle class in America that is, in part, attached to certain ideas of universalism, pretenses of universalism that very effectively mask their class position, launder their class position. Let me give you an example. Sure. Um, So I was in an event where there were a bunch of, um, you know, high wage earning professionals who graduated from, you know, Ivy League and that sort of um, milieu – 
lawyers, investment bank, corporate lawyers, investment bankers, whatever. Um, and at the table, there was one person who was a school teacher in a very poor, uh, almost entirely black school district. Um, I forget what state it was. And she had gone into this work because, you know, sense of idealism and also a sense that um, the American kind of broken education system was a central civil rights issue, right? Um, and she made a comment about um, the difficulties of teaching in a school like that, about the culture of the students and the challenges that that presented that was, to put it mildly, like, inelegant, unapt, basically like, you know, lack of respect for teachers and school, whatever. Mm-hmm. Sort of overly broad statement about the culture that she was talking about, but that... Reflecting her experiences reflecting in the classroom in, at this in, school. Yeah, over the course of several years. She goes to the bathroom or whatever, and the conversation immediately and delightedly turns to how racist she was, right, for having made the comment. And... <laughs> it was sort of interesting to look at these, you know, incredibly highly paid people who, you know, their day job is like I'm like a corporate lawyer trying to find a way for a corporation to get a better tax cut. Um, suddenly and delightedly be able to realize that they are morally superior on, um, you know, race related grounds than like a person working in a poor school district. Um because of the inelegance with which we had, she had phrased, you know, this observation. And it seemed like, I mean, it was just this immediate and kind of exulting uh, conversation about how terrible she was. Um, and it was just, you know, I, I thought it was, to me, it felt protective kind of conversation. Yeah. Listen, the, the funny thing is there's been no prior coordination. You've never told me that story mm-hmm. uh, prior to this. And I've never told you. Um, you know, my wife is a high school teacher. Yeah. I have literally the same story. <laughs> Are all the same characters. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the exact same thing has occurred with my wife, not in response to, uh, I forget what you're saying, this teacher said. My, my wife was making a, a, a point to someone we know about uh, challenges being a, a public high school teacher in New York, and um, this person, who I like very much, by the way, and is a smart person, in case they're listening, um, you know, this person is a highly paid corporate so-and-so, and was aghast at the suggestion that, um, I think it was over, like, the di- differences in outcome with kids whose families were more involved and yeah. kids whose families weren't involved. It was something like that. And, you know, my wife was saying, like, oh, you could just see a huge difference in uh, the kids whose parents are involved. And the idea that uh, there was a suggestion, I-, I don't even know what the objection was to. It was to some breach of etiquette that represented a transgression, a transgression against what? Against a kind of codified universalist rhetoric that actually serves to mask a loyalty, a universalism, a a pretense of universalism that serves to mask a loyalty. A loyalty to what? Well, this will surprise people who certain people seem to associate me with uh, conservative politics. 
because of my criticisms of liberalism, but, you know, I believe in class conflict mm-hmm. as uh, an engine of history. I'm not saying I believe in it as a moral good necessarily, and I don't view it in a strictly Marxist sense, but, you know, if you're looking at forces in history, class conflict is a real powerful force in shaping history. This is a form of loyalty. It's class loyalty masking itself as uh, a universalism. All right. So the art is a public ceremony um, that happened on uh, November 11th, 1921. This is the burial of the the unknown soldier. So the whole idea was started by um, Representative Hamilton Fish, which is a pretty good name, um, to bring back the body of an unknown American who was a member of the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe and lost his life in the war to do honor and pay homage to our unknown dead. And also, since the burial would be done on Memorial Day, to, quote, develop a stronger interest among veterans of the World War in Memorial Day and lead to the taking over of the ceremonies from the Grand Army of the Republic, it would tend to cement the North and South in one common Memorial Day. So this is not just about... um, World War One. It's also about at that that point trying to you know bind up the wounds of the Civil War, uh, and I'm taking these details from Jonathan Ebel's excellent GI Messiahs, uh, which is a really fascinating book about the ways that kind of sanctification of veterans is uh, has you know became a key part of the American civil religion. So <laughs> they they needed an unknown corpse that would stay unknown, right? So they select four corpses from the four main cemeteries uh, in France. They remove all the marks. Uh, they have Sergeant Edward Younger of Chicago, Chicago, who, quote, fitly represented the spirit of the American army since he'd been decorated for bravery by both the French and the Americans. And he was handed a bouquet of white roses to place in front of a coffin. He laid it, you know, randomly in front of the third coffin from the left. La- left. And then that corpse went on to, to receive, you know, the most lavish burial of any soldier in history sailed home under escort by French and American destroyers. Um, As he made his way up the Potomac, uh, they shot off cannons and guns. Uh, His casket was carried to a caisson with six black horses. Um, uh, Secretary of War John Weeks, Secretary of the Navy, and General General John Pershing looked on. The cavalry band played onward Christian soldiers. In the capital rotunda, he's there for two days, and 96,000 Americans come to pay respects to this corpse over the course of 18 hours on November 10th. And then the entire government, the president, the vice president, the Supreme Court, congressmen and cabinet members and Woodrow Wilson, the ex-president, all marched down the mall with him. Uh, Medal of Honor recipients were his pallbearers. He was awarded every medal they could give him, uh, this unknown corpse, the Congressional Medal of Honor, Belgium's Croix de Guerre, England's Victoria Cross, medals from France, Italy, Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia. The Metropolitan Opera is singing – sent a quartet to sing hymns. Uh, and chief plenty coups of the Crow Nation representing the Indians of the United States placed his war bonnet and coop stick on the cor- casket, quote, thus showing that he has left all he has got, he has done with that kind of warfare, and he honors the dead by giving him all he has. Um, a side note, interesting, War One is the beginning of the heavy over- over-representation of, of American Indians in the U.S. military. All right. And a lot of the the kind of pageantry around this was making it very clear that the soldier was a kind of civic religion Christ. You ever see those bumper stickers that are like, um, you know, it'll be like a soldier's cross, and 
and then like Jesus. They both died for your freedom. They both died for your freedom. That's yeah. right. Freedom from sin and and freedom in democracy. Um, and so this is very explicitly, you know, the Metropolitan Opera's quartet is singing, you know, to save mankind, yourselves you scorn to save, while in the frailty of our human clay, Christ our Redeemer passed the self same way. Um, so he's just like he's just like Christ. Um, Jonathan Ebel uh, brings up a contemporary sermon by the Reverend Aaron Heist, who riffed off of John one fourteen, and the Word became f- flesh. This is what we sell. Uh, he said, "You know, the American soldier is the sacrificial flesh that transmutes Woodrow Wilson's ideals into reality." And he, uh, Heist said in his Christmas sermon, "This is what we celebrate at Christmas: not the coming of the new Word, but the setting of the well-known Word in terms of flesh and blood." America spoke great words as she entered the war, words that have gone far and will long be remembered. But that which has given power to the words is that they became flesh, sacred flesh that lies buried in a soil once alien, clean flesh that is mar- that marched and fought and suffered for the honor of the country and the safety of humanity. This is the present and undying meaning of Christmas, <laughs> that God brings about his mighty ends by incarnation. Jake, when you were overseas, did you feel like you were the undying meaning of Christmas? No. <laughs> Thinking of a clever answer, but uh, they'll all amount to no. Um, and then Ebel contrasts this pageantry with one of the participants present at the internment, uh, uh, internment of the corpse, Lieutenant Colonel Charles White Whittlesley, who's one of the big heroes of the war. He was a Soft-spoken, bookish attorney went to Williams and Harvard Law School, and um, uh, he went overseas and served in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. His battalion uh, lost contact with flanking units, was completely encircled by the more experienced Germans. Um, No good shelter. The Germans shot at American runners. They shot at men trying to get water. They mounted multiple assaults in an attempt to overrun the unit. Whittlesey held the unit together. They fought off the Germans each time. They had low supplies, then no supplies, nothing to eat, hardly any water. Uh, They had such few medical supplies that they were reduced to stripping corpses of bandages in order to apply the used bandages to the freshly wounded. Um, This went on uh, for five days. He kept his men calm. He tried to bury the dead. He refused German demands for surrender. When the American units finally fought their way to him, his 600-man battalion was reduced to 194. Um... And so they became instant heroes, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, the papers uh, had a lot of uh, kind of purple prose. Yeah. Um, yeah, they did. Uh, so Will Irwin of the Saturday Evening Post declared, quote, All the world must know the story of the six lost companies of the 77th Division. Stars and Stripes described the autumn foliage of the Argonne ten days after the incident like this. Quote, The forest of the Argonne blazed all at once into russets and golds and purples, and here and there a scarlet tree as though the roots had drunk deep of young American blood spent freely for an eternal cause once more defended on those hills. End quote. So he comes back home and he's like a, a, a much feted but also very awkward fetty. Um, he gave a, a talk in uh, at the um, Armory Manhattan 
um, alongside the Secretary of the Treasurer, uh, 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 Treasurer, uh, Treasury, uh, and he said uh, to the audience, our men who have been facing and fighting the Germans won't come back hating them. Why, they might even share their cigarettes with the Kaiser if they met him on the road. Uh, the crowd didn't really know what to make of this, and one newspaper account noted that silence greeted this portion of the speaker's address. Yeah, Christ was insufficiently patriotic in that instance. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> he died for our freedoms, uh, but was ungrateful about the whole thing. Or just Inelegant. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't willing yeah. to, to, to punch the Kaiser in the eye on the yeah. way out, or, I guess, or, or hate him as, as he went down. Or hate his minions. Yeah. Hate the Kaiser's minions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... So, you know, he became more guarded. He, he wasn't as, as uh, open. Uh, he spent a lot of his time helping out former soldiers uh, who appeared at his office, uh, frequently asking for work or money advice. He got involved with the American Legion, with charitable organizations, helped the Pol- Polish stowaway cousin of one of his soldiers avoid deportation. Um, and then he en- ends up at this unknown soldier ceremony, which deeply disturbed him. And he told a, a friend of his and fellow Medal of Honor recipient, George McMurdy, I shall have nightmares tonight and hear the wounded screaming once again. I should not have come here. And um, Jonathan Ebel in his book is talks about why this might have been, you know, why this ceremony, which seems like, you know, the most over-the-top glorification of soldiers you could imagine, would have been so disturbing. And he says, um, there's nothing especially noble or ennobling about a body so torn by combat, so decomposed that nobody can determine who it once was. The nation must imagine the ghost of the soldier. It must clothe the dead man once again in flesh, dress him again in uniform, fill him again with the blood that poured out of him, and then imagine the tearing of the clothes and the fresh flesh, the shedding of that blood, and the soldier's willingness to die. And Emble, you know, points out, Whittlesey certainly knew that it was quite possible that the corpse was the corpse of, you know, one of his soldiers. Uh, and if it had been, that would have been a death that he wouldn't have had to imagine in this sanctified, patriotically cleansed fashion because he would have known precisely how that guy died and precisely how willing that guy was to do it. A uh, few, few weeks later, he visits friends. He tells them he's going to be away visiting family. He cleans he, his desk, uh, leaves instructions for how to deal with the 12 law cases assigned to him, draws up a will. November 20th, actually 10 days uh, or nine days after the event, he boards a ship bound for Havana, prepares nine sealed envelopes for family and friends, as well as words of a wireless message to his family. And then at some point in the journey, probably the night of the 20th or early in the 21st, he jumps over the edge of the deck and disappears beneath the waves. Now, um, obviously you can't know what he was thinking, hmm. but he prepared his death with incredible care. Friends described him beforehand as happy and easy like his pre-war self. The night of the, uh, the 20th, the captain described him as good spirits at the meal. And as Ebel makes a point of, of, of noting, he chose a manner of death that made it absolutely certain that his body would never be recovered. And so could never be interred in yeah. such a way. Yeah, what a unbelievable story. Um, sort of defies commentary. You know, it's... I'm tempted if we didn't have an obligation to fill more time to let that be the final word. I, I feel in a way like um, anything I say after this is going to be uh, a distraction from something more important. But I'll offer this. In some ways, the most dangerous thing would be a 
a patriotism that takes as its principle a pure universalism uh, or a a nationalism of, you know, like an imperial universalism, right, which is sort of underlying part of what this incredible grandiloquent um, burial ceremony is about in that, right, it's, it's this Wilsonian ethos underlying it, right? And there is a case to be made, I think, that the, the Wilsonian internationalism um, has been fairly disastrous uh, for the 20th century and into the 21st, and that, you know, not, not that national self-determination um, was a bad thing, though, you know, even that took on some perverse forms, I think, but that the democratic universalism as a martial spirit, as a military venture, has been disastrous, um, not only for the United States, but um, for the the countries um, that have been uh, invaded uh, with the point of uh, converting them to the to the what what would you call it in this year the Christian spirit of democracy yeah. um, the abstract ideals abstracted from any kind of respect for or understanding of the particular societies communities political structures and institutions that are yeah 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 no and I I am not somebody who you know is revolted by all forms of military pageantry or ceremony I mean in some ways I think it's I think it's important in some ways yeah. I think that there's a role for it and I quite like the idea of a burial for the unknown soldier on a certain level same here um, this is a, a tension I am continually dealing with a conflict I'm continually dealing with in my own thinking about these things is um, you know how to reconcile um how to reconcile this stuff, but here is an instance of it where it seems like the the perversity is unavoidable and tragic and um, impossible to miss. There's um, Peter Lucier wrote a really good piece for the Revealer called "Not Your Messiah." Yeah, yeah, I read that. It's fantastic, and and he talks about the sort of the Lucier is a American Marine, right? Marine veteran. Yeah. He's writing for. Um, he writes for. He's written for a variety of places around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and the way that sort of, especially now in a country where the, um, you know, veterans are such a small portion of the population, where there's almost like this kind of like Gnostic priesthood that the combat veteran can occupy if they really want to, where they. Um, are the you know have a certain authority vested in them? Yeah, uh, and how he, you know he himself. First off, you know whatever that knowledge is, it's something that he's groping for himself. He doesn't want to be anybody you know like the priest of an American religion. He wants to be a fellow believer, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and I think that yeah, there. I think. Rituals, customs, traditions of patriotism that incorporate 
you know, a respect for military sacrifice are important. It's, it's like you need that to sustain yeah. um, aspects of, of the, you know, functioning of a, of a, of a state. Um, but but it, it, it can go in, 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 in too far you What's know, one direction. To- and it also – part of the thing that, that the Whittlesby story underlies is the way in which trying to kind of purify it too much, um, you're not just it, – it necessarily entails flattening the actual experience of veterans. Right. Right. I don't think it's a priesthood, right? It has the appearances of a priesthood, this sort of holy veteran class. But priests, there's no power conferred, right? Mm -hmm. Priests can absolve priests uh, by their agency, by their connection. It's a Gnostic priesthood. (laughs) It's a a holy leper, Mm -hmm. you know? It's a Mm -hmm. sin eater. It's a a sacred victim. Um, But... The, the this investment in this holy class doesn't grant that class any power. Yeah, you know it's there's not there's not an elevated uh, material or, or real social position. There's a you know oh, it, gl- it grants them some. I mean the the post nine eleven GI Bill, which is we've mentioned that's before, a, is, a material dispensation. It has nothing to do with. Uh, I shouldn't say it has nothing to do. I think of that as a separate category fundamentally from the kind of. Uh, clerical aspect of this or the the um that sort of symbolic aspect of this but we're um we're caught between these tensions right can i uh can i read you a final bit here from one of um my favorite books from one of my favorite authors anatole broyard's memoir kafka was the rage and this is actually from Broyard's um, preface or introduction, the prefatory remarks, and and it it gets at a feeling um, that is both something I I think describes the the way I feel and the way I see the world and does it in in a, a really evocative way. The tragedy and the comedy of my story was that I took American life to heart with the kind of strenuous and ardent sincerity that young men usually bring to love affairs. While some of my contemporaries made a great show of political commitment, it seems to me that their politicizing of experience abstracted them from the ordinary, from the texture of things. They saw only a platonic idea of American life. To use one of their favorite words, they were alienated. I was not. In fact, one of my problems was that I was alienated from alienation, an insider among outsiders. The young intellectuals I knew had virtually read and criticized themselves out of any feeling of nationality. Hmm. Now, if you can uh, forget about that earlier distinction we made between nationalism and patriotism, uh, or recognize that by nationality, he doesn't mean nationalism. You know, that's uh, something I feel myself. Yeah. I think that's a good note. Hmm. All right. Thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. Phil and I have been really heartened and pleased with the response so far. Hop on over to Facebook and check us out there where uh, we really will get better at posting the links 
to art that we mention in the episodes and where we hope you'll be able to give us some feedback, let us know if there are manifestos you want us to talk about in the future. And while you're at it, go to iTunes and give us a rating there. Also, for those who'd like to read ahead for our next episode, the manifesto will be Jean Amory's essay, Resentments, and the art will be the short story, A Father's Story, by Anne-André Dubas II.